In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson. I'm Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Liz Daff. Today we're going to be talking about the kind of questions that psychologists get asked all the time. Usually on this podcast we kind of chat about research or focus on a particular topic, but over and over again we're noticing that we're getting the same questions. So we decided to fling it out to a group of psychologists on Facebook and ask them what kind of questions they get asked by their clients, friends at parties, things like that. We thought we'd invite Liz back so that we could have another perspective on this, especially a different type of psychologist. So Hunter works in hospitals, Liz works in forensic settings, and I work with kids in the community. So before we get started, uh, as always, we'd like to ask you to subscribe to the show. You can find us on, well, you've obviously found us, you've found us on iTunes or Podbean or a whole bunch of different different apps. You can like us, rate us, uh, send us comments, or you can also send us emails to shrinkspod at gmail.com, talk to us on Twitter, or visit our website, everything's two shrinks pod. Uh, so I think the way that we're going to do things today is we're going to rotate around asking one another questions, and then we'll each chime in. We'll then wrap up with a sort of rapid fire round with questions that are pretty much yes, no answers. And then instead of doing things we came across today, we're going to do pods we came across. So a whole bunch of different podcasts that interest each of us. So shall we get started? Let's do it. All right, guys. So I reckon you would have all heard this one. Are you psychologizing me right now? Are you reading (laughs) my mind? Are you analyzing me? Are you working out what is wrong with me? <laughs> yes. Yes, always. I'm always doing that to you. And every psychologist that you've ever met is doing that. They know. Thought as much. They know what's going on. It's, it's like it is a surprisingly common question. And on the Facebook group that we put this out to and amongst other colleagues I've talked to about it, this is like the number one comment Absolutely. that psychologists get. The way I answer it is yes and no. Mostly in my personal life, like probably not. And then I've, over time, over time as a clinician, I've worked out that I don't do it. I've like learned how to switch it off. And then if something baffles me, like Mm. in my day-to-day life, or I don't quite kind of work out what's going on with somebody, someone's irritating me or something, then I kind of go, oh, I wonder what's going on there. And my psych brain Mm. turns on. Do you guys have that same kind of thing? Yeah, Yeah, I reckon so. Do you guys think that was around before you trained as a psychologist or is that something that you developed and with your training or is it just something that you notice more now? I I certainly, I certainly, I can remember instances as a teenager giving advice to my family when, you know, one particular member of the family was upset and going, this is what we should do Mm. or this is what's going to happen and then it would Mm. happen. And so like I clearly had that kind of, instinct there and I think over time I've learned how to formalize it yeah and then I think as my training's gone on I've kind of learned how to it used to be on a lot and then now I've, I need a break from stuff mm. and so like I wind it back but then there'll be like an effortful process a little bit that kind of stuff but then sometimes otherwise I'll just be like I used to say to my wife like 
she was an artist and we'd go out to dinner and she'd notice all the art in the wall and I'd notice all the people breaking up in the yeah. restaurant. Like, <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> yeah, it is kind of that running in the background process, but it's not heard or paid attention to unless for me it's kind of red flag kind of things that kick it on for me more than being confused by something. What do you mean red flag? Uh, so if it's kids around me or if I'm in like a shopping centre or something and a kid's doing something that's particularly unusual or that kind of indicates that there's something going on, mm. that will immediately kick my psych brain in. Yeah. But otherwise it's kind of same as you, I've learnt to silence it a bit. But definitely it was always there. So um, it's not something that – it's not trained and it's something that when when people who aren't psychologists ask – about whether you're analysing them or reading their mind, mm. that sort of thing. It sounds like it may be that you're more aware of or in tune to those sorts of things anyway, mm. just mm. based on who you sort of are as a person. And I think there's a curiosity that was always there. Like I always wanted to know about people or yeah. to understand them and that's really often what that's about. Mm. It doesn't come from – I feel like these questions all have a kind of fear of judgement underneath it of kind of like yep. are you trying to pick me apart? And I guess, as we've said, are you working out what's wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not just about that no. what's wrong with... It's kind of like, who are you as a person? I'm interested. How are people made up? Yeah. How they work together? All right. The next question that we had came from people talking about what their clients had asked them, which was, do you think about me when I'm not here? Short answer, no. Yeah. Largely for me, I think, particularly through training, there's a really big emphasis on trying not to take your work home. So I think, as you said before, Hunter, yes and no. Mm. During my work day, yes. Mm -hmm. If I'm not with a client, then I'll often be working through and thinking about who I'm seeing and what we're working on together and where I might go next, mm -hmm. formulating all of that sort of stuff that's a part of being a psychologist. But at the end of the day, when I go home, I try and I try and make an effort to not take it home with me because I find that that's a recipe for burnout. Mm. It makes it a lot harder to then focus when I come back to work. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're able to not think about your clients when you go home at the end of the day, it provides you with a sort of fresh, clear view when you come back to work the next yeah. day. And I think that's really important rather than it being a bad thing where people think that you don't care about them or think about yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that that's true. Would you say that you have always been able to do that across your training has it gotten easier about the same or gotten harder I don't know I think I was I was quite surprised when I began my training and working with people how how easy I found it and I think that was a combination of things particularly being really aware of it mm. Mm. so in a base level of psychopathy or <laughs> <laughs> You tell me, are you analysing me right now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I think, I think because I was really aware of the sorts of things that draw psychologists to the profession are often things that make them care about people and think about people. And so I was very aware that I didn't want that to make the job harder yeah, when yeah. I left and to be able to have that separation outside of work. But in saying that, I think for myself and colleagues who I've spoken to, there's there's inevitably one or two cases or situations that will come up during work mm. 
that are a little bit harder to shift yeah. and, you know, whether that's a day, a week or just intermittently coming mm. back, there's things that you'll think about. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I this question I think is really interesting for me because, like, I, I remember training and I remember that big thing for, for me was learning how to separate that out, not mentally taking work home with me. So this idea of like not taking your clients home with you, not thinking about them. It was sort of working on hospital wards and kind of never really seeing sick and dying people before and then sort of suddenly being confronted with that. But I think probably more for me it was about sort of being a perfectionist and perfectionistic and kind of mm. wanting to do a good job and then kind of like thinking, oh, you know, if I think about it a lot, then I'll try and figure it out. And I think probably as I've gotten better professionally skills-based, then I think I've kind of gotten better at kind of learning like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I can think about it for this amount of time and I'll work it out or yeah. I'll, I'll that'll be... Something I, that happens over time. Yeah. And then the other big hurdle for me was working in my first role and it was a very stressful environment and and coming across a lot of more complex like personality pathology mm. and those patients I think you do end up mentally taking them home, you know, kind of going, oh gosh, you know, wow, that person's really on my mind or something like that. So I think it's kind of interesting. The, the sub question, have you ever had the experience of thinking about a patient that you finished with? Yeah. Yeah. So I've definitely, there's yeah. certain patients where mm. you kind of like, I wonder what happened to them. Yeah. Cases where it's kind of unresolved yeah. or where mm. you know that some sort of change is coming up or something where you, it's usually the ones where there's no where you know that you're not actually going to cross paths with them again to see how things go for me. It's kind of the yeah. ones where they've moved far away or whatever and it's kind of that thing of going, well, I don't know how things yeah. turned out. So if you're listening and you're not a psychologist and you're a client, you know, we think about you but we have a therapist has lots of patients mm. whereas a client has one therapist. Yeah. So it's this kind of like this reversal and the therapist by definition looms large in the client's life mm. or that's the intent because that's the way that therapy heals essentially. Yeah. yeah. It is, it's this weird thing. It's like, well, I do think about you but for a limited period of time mm. and it doesn't mean that I don't care about you. No, yeah. all that, that therapeutic relationship isn't genuine. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I find if I am able to not think about a client outside of session and work, it makes my sessions much more focused mm. and I feel much more present in the room and like I'm taking in a lot more information because I think it's coming back to that idea of I feel a bit cognitively refreshed, even mm, if I've mm, been working mm, all day mm. and thinking about lots mm. of different clients and cases. You, you look at it with fresh eyes. Like, yeah. You know, like I, and I had a case today where I, was, and I hadn't thought about them for the fortnight or whatever it was and then came in, looked at my notes and, hmm, and I had like a fresh mm. idea, which I then yep. pursued in therapy, which was then helpful. Like it's different to ruminating about yeah. what so, to do. Next question. Mm -hmm. So Amy... Yep. This is like a kids-focused one. Next time, can I be the only one that you see on that day or can I come visit you even if I'm better? <laughs> I get both of those yep. a lot. I think kids struggle with that idea that you'll see other clients for that very reason. There's that thing of, well, but you're my therapist. And so often kids are unsettled if the room has changed while they're gone or something like a picture that they've put up is in a slightly different position or there's another picture there that kind of they then go, hang on a minute, there was someone else mm. here. And so I 
at the start of therapy, I do a fair bit of that kind of like, you know, if they say they want to leave something there, like something they've made, I'll have to say, okay, we need to put it somewhere safe because there are other people who come into this room and they often don't like that idea. They get kind of freaked out Mm. by the idea that there are other people. They also want to know what those other people's problems are. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, whereas that, well, but I think like adult clients have that, but they're just like they're trying, we're trying yeah. to be polite about <laughs> yeah. it. Like. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the, the can I come and visit you even if I'm better question I find quite tough because you do build that relationship and depending on the environment you're in, they have the opportunity to check in with you or not. So like when I've worked in schools, it's kind of, well, hey, we can, we can check in and if things change for you or there's something that we need to talk about absolutely or I'll sort of see you around the place. Yeah. But if you're in a service where they have to make an appointment and come in, it's a different kind of thing. So generally I, I pitch it as, well, we're wrapping up what's been a really tricky period for you and, you know, you're welcome to come and see me again in the future but I'm kind of hoping that things kind of go along okay mm. and that that things sort of plod on okay for you and every now and then I'll get a letter or a card from a parent or a kid going hey guess what this thing happened that we were working towards and that's always lovely to hear like I always I'm, I'm quite pleased to hear that but it's not something that I can set up any expectation of happening yeah it's difficult isn't it like because I can see in oncology like mm. usually the only way I come across patients again is if they get sick or they die yeah like and that's a quite a tricky thing about the work. And and, some, and and it can be as cold as uh, log on to the computer in the morning and the patient administration program just gives you an alert mm. and you click on it and it says, oh, you know, patient X has died. And, <laughs> and that, can be, that can be a really interesting yeah. set of emotions to mm. feel. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, and then I've been random, sometimes randomly I come across people, you know, I might be driving and see somebody mm. or something and... You know, you go, oh my god, that person's just had a baby, yeah. like, or something, yeah. and you're just filled with like overwhelming joy. So it's this, it's this really weird role where mm. you don't off, you don't often get to find out no. what goes on, and you can't actively seek them out. No, to find that out. ethically, that's probably no. Not pro- so you're kind of in this. Well, you're in this passive kind of position of if they happen to go past you, or if they happen to mention to a friend that they've seen you, and then that friend says something, or what, like it's, it's yeah. an odd relationship. So, Hunter, something else that seems to come up quite a bit, particularly in the ever-changing landscape of mental health and how acceptable people Mm. see mental health issues as being, is clients asking, do you think I'm crazy? Do you think I'm a terrible person? Mm. Mm. It's interesting. Mm. I've answered this a number of ways. (laughs) I've definitely... With the do you think I'm crazy, depending on the circumstance, I will actually say, nope, you're not. In fact, if anything, it would be easier if you were crazy because we'd just give you some pills mm. and the mental health team would come and check on you every week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's a kind of like me making a joke, but to reassure a patient mm. or something like that. But I mean, I think it's such an interesting question because you're like, well, what does that mean to mm. be crazy? How come you're asking me that question? You sound like you're worried about that. But also I think some people in therapy will say, look, they're not used to having 40 minutes just to talk or 50 minutes just to talk, mm. right? You know, I read a study or something which just said that GPs interrupt within the first 30 seconds 
you know, or 10 seconds of, of a patient talking. There was some kind of like average thing. Mm. And so I think it's very unusual for someone who's not used to therapy to kind of come in and kind of having someone going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and just listening and people mm. kind of go, oh, do you, like, am I making sense? Am I just yeah. crazy? Like, <laughs> or, like, why are you, like, why are you looking at, like, yeah. why are you being so understanding? Or like, you're not talking to me. <laughs> this is, this is. What, what are you thinking? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. what are you thinking? So it's quite nerve wracking. Yeah. I think in those situations, I often kind of, depending on what I think is going on, I'll often kind of give them some feedback around, no, 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 I'm listening. Like, this is this is what you're saying to me. I'm, I'm kind of understanding what you're saying. It can be quite interesting to kind of, I certainly have had on more than one occasion where I've had someone who's been very anxious about the fact that they feel like they're not holding it together. Yeah. Or they feel like that, you know, or maybe that they've had a parent who had a mental illness and so there's a core belief there that they might not have ever really voiced, but which is, am I going to go crazy? Mm. Like, or is it like, am I going to end up like my parent? Mm. And I've certainly said to some people like, well, actually, if you're going to go crazy, but you would have gone crazy, but we would have seen it. And actually what, what you've got, is actually anxiety. And so I think that can be quite, yeah. you know, so like I kind of like to shoot people straight a bit around yeah. it. The do you think I'm a terrible person? That's a really interesting one because, mm. you know, sometimes people can act badly mm. and I think you have to kind of call it, you have to be, like it depends on really what it's about. Mm. I, I think I take the approach of, well, you need to understand what the patient, the person's gone through as to why they've acted a particular kind of way and then sort of be able to explain that back to them. Mm. And then and you can sort of say to them, well, some, for some people they might think that that's terrible but it doesn't really sound like it or yeah. maybe you did act a bit badly. But Is that who you are or is that a bad behavior rather than you being a bad person yeah like like you know is the instance like you know say if you someone cheated on someone Mm. for example or stole something at work or whatever it is is that reflective of a broader pattern of behavior Mm. or is this kind of something that's a bit more discreet and i think with that one often you know the very thing of asking do you think i'm a terrible person or do you think that i'm a terrible that i'm terrible because i did this thing often shows that it doesn't actually fit with their sense of who they are. Yeah. Like it's, it's dissonant. Exactly, which kind of highlights that thing that, well, if you were a really terrible question, would you be kind of ruminating on this thing? Would yeah. it just kind of fit with the way you were in, in life? How do you... Yeah, but then I think that there's a risk that you run as a therapist if you just like, no, no, you're lovely, you're yeah, great. definitely. Because people don't buy it. No. People just don't, they're not... Or they like, say things like, well, you have to say that. Well, I mean, what about for you, Liz? Like in the, in the, with a population that objectively society has said that they've done the wrong thing. Well, like, I think... Do you get that kind of question? Yeah, she's nodding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've had that question a lot. And I think that... I mean, we have a large proportion of people who are incarcerated or involved in the forensic system. I don't know. I'd argue they're not all terrible people. Mm. Yeah. And I think, Amy, you made a really good point. I think in forensics in particular where people are often questioning this and questioning what they've done, even whether they agreed with what they did at the time or not, Mm. if at this later point they're looking back and asking this question about am I a terrible person, I think that ability to separate the person from the behaviour is really, really important Mm. because otherwise you run the risk of having someone so fused with behaviours that it makes it 
difficult for them to see any other option for future. Yeah, for both future behaviour and just yeah, for yeah. Life. If this is yeah. the sort of if this is the sort of thing I do, I must be a terrible person. And if I'm a terrible person, that means I do these things, mm. and that's my lot. Yeah, and that's the only pathway. I can go down. And Mm. I think that's really important because when you're working psychologically with offending behaviour, whether there's mental illness involved with that or not, you're you're not just looking at increasing someone's well-being or as we say, you're not just trying to make a happy criminal. Mm. Yeah, you're trying trying to prevent offending. Yeah. But I think think that that even comes back to like say someone's done something wrong, say, say they cheated on their partner, right? And if you go, well, you are a terrible person for doing that. What are they? What's that person going to do? Like mm. are they going to just, you know, perhaps fall into the same pattern of behaviour that led them to that thing and hurt more people or not mm. like that, you know, so there's that kind of thing of like you, you prevent a shame spiral or a guilt spiral or something like that. Exactly. And I think it's also important as a clinician to reflect on <laughs> what's the utility in responding one way or the mm. other. Yeah. It shuts it down for further exactly. kind of exploration if you categorically go either way. Yeah, so saying, agreeing with someone, no, yeah, you're a terrible person, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'd have trouble doing that. Re- but a lot of people have that, a lot of parents have it, which is like they feel frustration towards mm. the child or that they know that they were ignoring their child or, mm. or you know, they have images or thoughts about eating their child or whatever. Thoughts don't mean action. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people believe that if they think something, that means they're bad yeah. when actually they're just thinking it. Mm. So Exactly. I think that's whether it's forensic work or otherwise a really important distinction to make. That's something that you often focus on in, in particular interventions. Say you're looking at someone's anger management, for example, and someone's focusing on the times that they lost control. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, whether that resulted in an offending behaviour or just yelling at a partner, whatever it is, and someone's coming to you and they're focusing on all of these bad times and all of these terrible things they've done... And after working with people for a while, you can often come up with all of the times that hasn't happened. Mm. Yeah. And that's where some normalisation is really valuable as well around, well, you know, as you said, having these thoughts is not always uncommon. Having these feelings is not always uncommon. Yeah. It doesn't make you a terrible person to have those. It doesn't even necessarily make you a terrible person to act on them. But it's about looking at what what led you to act on that mm. that time. What made the difference that time? And... I think, again, it can often come down to the sorts of people that you're working with and a lot of the situational Mm. factors influencing that person at that time in that circumstance. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That can really help to shape how fused they are with that idea of being a terrible person. Yeah, I like like that word fused. It's such such an evocative word. (laughs) (laughs) Who's next? All right, so Liz... Why would I come to see you if you haven't experienced one of the issues that I've got going? The examples that we had were things like loss, having children, drug use, financial pressure, things like that. Yeah, the classic was like, what yeah. do you know? Do you, you, don't do you e- have children? You don't even have kids. Yeah. Why would I come and see you? Were or- you even a kid? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just sprung up fully formed as a psychologist <laughs> in this office. Yeah, I, I keep, <laughs> it's that easy. I, yeah. keep, I keep waiting for a cancer patient to say, you've never, you know, you've never had cancer. Mm. How, why would I listen to you? But mm. it's, I've never... I, th- I think they probably don't turn up to therapy initially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really interesting one because I, I have had it a few times. Mm. don't know what it is about me <laughs> that conveys <laughs> I have not experienced 
whatever it is someone's talking to me about. Well, (laughs) I think think the offence one is almost so obvious that I haven't experienced it. It doesn't come up. But what does come up is, as people have brought up here, different hardships in life. Mm. Those different situations that people feel often isolated in and lonely in Mm. and like they're the only one who has experienced this or at least you the person they're talking to definitely hasn't so how do you get it Mm. I think it can be quite humbling because yeah for a lot of these things I haven't experienced them and for a lot of them I'm incredibly lucky that I haven't experienced them maybe not so much things like having children (laughs) 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 some of them I'm some of them I'm sure are positive don't speak too soon (laughs) (laughs) but there's lots of there's lots of life experiences that I haven't had that mm. clients have had and they're, they're in a very good position to ask that. Why, why do you think you can provide me with help in managing whatever it is I'm going through when you haven't experienced what I'm going through? And I think my response to that is often that you're right. I'm not the expert on your life. You're the mm. expert on your life. I'm the one who's talking to you about your mental health and how that can present Mm. and linking some of those dots for you. So this might be the situation you're in, but how are you managing that? How are you responding to that? What, what things seem to exacerbate this Mm. situation Mm. or vice versa? And that's where I think that collaborative client therapist relationship is so important because that's what allows you to do your best work is if you have enough rapport with your client that they feel like they can tell you these things Mm. and that, they feel empowered enough to be the expert on their experiences, good and bad, mm. and that you can then provide your expertise to help them manage that. Yeah, definitely. Your experiences. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I think I was thinking about like how would I respond to that, and I would be like, yeah, you know, like I haven't had cancer, or, or like, you know, I haven't, I haven't gone through that, you know. So, mm. you know, I'm interested in hearing about what that was about. Mm. Like, what, what was it like? Can you explain it to me? I know it might be a bit painful. So what does that mean? What does mm. that mean? Like painful, not sort of emotionally. Mm. But I mean, I guess the, the one time I did have it was from like staff staff in a hospital saying, you know, well, you're working with breast cancer patients. How are you going to work with breast cancer patients? You're not a woman. Mm. Um, yeah. And and so I think I explained to them that I'd worked with heroin addicts and I'd never been addicted to heroin. And, yeah. and, you know, sort of like sort of pointed out that, you know, you don't actually, as a psychologist, you don't actually have to have had the problem no. to work effectively with it. Like, yeah. you know, that if anything that, you know, there's lots of other support groups that will be run by people who have had that problem and that serves a particular role but that's not the role i'm having right and and i think as a psychologist if you are trading on the fact that you have had the same experience Mm. and that's the primary way in then i think that's problematic if anything like i think you know because you're bringing yourself in when really you know about you yeah like if i've had a kid and my and the person across from me has had a kid or I've been in jail and the person across from me has been in jail or whatever, my experience is not the same as their experience. No, no, It exactly. might be similar, but it's not the same. Mm. So it's like I sort of try and be, play it pretty straight yeah. and sort of say, well, look, that's true. Maybe I don't understand it at all, but I'm here to understand it and yeah. tell me about it. And like it sounds like you're a bit annoyed with people not understanding And I think that it's perhaps a misunderstanding of the role of a psychologist to an extent. Again, coming back to it's it's 
it's not our job to tell somebody what they're experiencing or how hard that was or yeah. how good that mm. was. People don't assume their GP has had the illness that they've got. No. They no. assume the GP knows how to fix the illness that mm. they've or got. Or they understand or, what the illness is. Mm. Yeah, or understand what it is. Yeah, and I think a, a psychologist's job is to often hear what a patient's saying and then explain it back to somebody in a way that helps them move forward and kind of go, mm. oh, yeah. so this sounds like that was anxiety or you were really frustrated at that, mm. that time or it sounds like you've always been carrying around frustration but you can't express it and mm. and mm. and sort of give them insight into what's going on. Mm. And then to make that easier or to help fix this issue that you've got, we would do A, B and C and we'll try A, B and C just like if you go to the doctor and yep. explain what's mm. going on, they say we'll try A, B and C. Amy. Yes. Another, mm. another kid-related one. Yep. So this is when a parent might say to you, mm, I don't need to do anything different. My kid's the one with a problem. <laughs> why? Or like, no, no. You know, yeah. why, why are you telling me what to do? Yeah. My, she's the one with the issue at the moment. Does that, does that happen a lot? A lot. Yeah, right. A lot of the time. It varies what it's about. Yeah. Uh, it comes up quite often. I think. I think there's a lot of family dynamics in play and... A lot of the time the kids identified as, well, they're the one with the problematic behaviour. So you just work with them because it's their issue. But a lot of the time it's about kind of going, well, that kid's part of a whole system of people. Mm -hmm. And the way I approach that is different with each family. With some families it's kind of like, well, can we bring in some time when we have everyone in together and we do some family work to work things out together and, you know, you obviously want to help your kid because you've brought them here. Let's work on this together, that kind of partnership approach. Mm. Other times I've had to have some really blunt conversations with parents of going, I can see that your kid is struggling, but it's also clear to me that you're struggling as well. And the best way to move forward with this is for you to get some help as well. Yeah. It goes in different <laughs> directions. Some people are on board with that. Some people go, well, no, and mm. bring it back to the kid. It's kind of something that you have to play around with and also earn a bit of trust as well. Often if they see that you're doing something that's having an impact, then they're more likely to go, you know how you mentioned to me a few weeks ago that you could link me with someone else. Maybe it's time for that number. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of trying to find some leverage somehow. Yeah, I mean, I often like hearing you talk about it, like I think it's this mixture of defensiveness, yeah. lack of insight into yeah. the fact that either they're contributing to the problem or that they can actually do it. But also I think there is a very good understanding of what adult psychotherapy is, mm. right? Which is person goes off and sees a therapist and you guys work it out. Mm. Like there's a – people kind of get that. Whether they get mm. the nuts and bolts of it is different. But I think the I, – I certainly know because I was never trained in system stuff until yeah. the last couple of years that like if you don't really understand what that is – then the idea of like why would you work with a family mm. and like why would that be important like it seems really baffling and it's like well why wouldn't you just like just fix the problem yeah <laughs> like and that. there's sort of a thing like well I come to my own appointment and just do it one-on-one -on -one. I don't bring the kids yeah. why would I mm. be in on that or why why would that be important so it's always something that I talk about up front and I always talk about it in the way of like you know some parents really like the idea of this and other people are really uncomfortable with it let's kind of work it out and sometimes it can go the other way as well the kid really doesn't want the parents involvement 
or for them to have anything to do with it. And the parents want to be involved. And the parents really <laughs> want to be involved and want to know everything. And it's, it's kind of managing this tension and being really clear about it. So I'm clear with everyone all together. Amy, I was going to ask when you're having this conversation up front with families mm. when they come in, you've mentioned that parents vary yep. in how they take that idea of systems influencing yep. each other within the family dynamic. Yeah. How do kids take it? How do you try and explain to them, particularly if they don't want mum and dad there, yeah. that a lot of what they do is the result or related to what mum and dad do? It varies about what's going on, how I pitch it. So yep. I come at it from different angles. For some kids who at the bottom of it, they really want to feel looked after or whatever and feel like that the parents don't know how to look after them or that they're looking after their parents or whatever. It's A lot of it's about kind of, well, how can we teach mum and dad some things that might be able to help you? And oftentimes the kids who don't want their parents in, they, it's because they don't feel listened to yeah. or they don't feel like, well, there's no point because they haven't listened to me at home, so why would they listen to me here? Mm. So it's kind of going, well what if we were to play with that and have some opportunity for it? So they they understand the them-centric side of it they rather than the dynamic itself? Depending on how old they are. Yep. So with, with teenagers, they kind of get it more mm-hmm. um, and often it will be the teenagers who will say it would be really great to get mum in here or there's no way I could have these conversations at home. Is it all right if I bring mum or dad or something next time so yep. that I can say this thing mm. to them. Will you I've, help I've me say that, I've this had that thing? adult therapy, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yep. so it's more parallel with the adult stuff with teenagers. With little kids, it's more than focused on the parents. And the kids are often quite used to the fact that mum and dad come with the, in with them for the GP, for yep. various other things, the younger they are. So, so it yeah. kind of splits. Yeah, like, like in the hospital setting and particularly in oncology, people are advised to bring family mm. members to appointments and they kind of just get used to it. Mm. Like mm. they kind of get used to it, like the partner's always there or the daughter's always yeah. there or the son's always there. And so it is kind of interesting. Like I've certainly learned to be like, oh, okay, some more people are coming to <laughs> the first appointment today. Yeah. And I've learned a way of getting people to... I include them for the first bit, but then I kick them out. Yeah, yeah, I think and, that's it. I often and, empower the kid. And but then also by doing that, you get to see a little bit of the system. Yeah, and then you get mm. to see. Like I've certainly, I remember in my training, I had a patient, and as soon as her husband left, she just broke down crying, and it was this really kind of. You could just see that she was she'd been really holding on for mm. months and keeping and it, it together. Yeah, and it was it was actually really kind of beautiful in this kind of way, and it was really really interesting. And so, like, I think I get the reverse of like you're trying to de-mesh them. If yeah, that kind of makes sense. Probably not the right word, but no. Yeah, sometimes I get that as well, but yeah, I tend to bookend my sessions with kids who are kind of primary school age or younger. So we have mum or dad or both or whoever's come with them, invite them in at the start five minute kind of check in, kick them out, then bring them back in at the end and we vary how long that is. And it's always that the deal always is, is that unless it's something to do with risk or something traumatic that's happened that needs to be reported, etc., me and the kid will work out before they come back in the room and I tell the parents this, we're going to work out what we're going to tell you about what we've done today. And some parents are really uncomfortable with it. Other parents go cool it's their time and then we have that conversation in front of the kid so that 
they don't feel like I'm going to call mum afterwards and go, oh, you'll never guess what she said to mm. me. Mm. Um, and then that often buffers it. And sometimes the kid will say, I want mum to know nothing. And so I usually kind of go, can we tell her what we played today while we were talking? And they'll go, yeah, okay. And we'll bring mum in and we'll tell her that. And then over time it kind of shifts and morphs into it'd be all right if she knew that I was upset for a bit or whatever. Yeah. But it's, you have to be patient. So yeah. it sounds like having that structure around your sessions and being really open and clear, not mm. just with mm. the, the kid who's your client, yeah. but the parents, their parents well. also builds rapport with them over time and yeah. increases their chance of buy-in with maybe doing yeah. something themselves. Yeah. So quite a few questions coming from clients, family, concerned friends, <laughs> everybody really around coping broadly. Hunter, what do you say or do or how do you respond when clients ask you about how do you cope with all that I tell you and don't you don't you just get depressed listening to people talk about their problems all day? Um, this is kind of a common, like it's really, really common thing. It depends on what I, how I want to answer it, like in terms of what I, the goal of it and like I think what's going on. I will explain it sort of practically. It's like, yeah, well, mm. I do have a supervisor um, who I will go and debrief with in difficult cases if that's, if that's what I think I need to do and I see them fortnightly or monthly or, you know, <laughs> weekly if, it's, if things are really complicated. And I use it as a way of framing it. Like I know it sounds a bit boring, but I sort of frame it as like, well, you know, I have a whole lot of things that I like to do that, like, to be honest, this is stressful. Like, and I do kind of, I shoot them straight and say, well, you know what, like, you know, working in wherever I've worked can be complicated and difficult at times. So I kind of use that as an example of like, well, you know, I have my own set of self-care. Mm. And I might mm. self-disclose a little bit. Classic one I'll talk about. It's like, well, you know, I like to collect Star Wars toys. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> like I just kind of do. It's a little boy hunter like gets a kick out of that. Yeah. And... Or, I, you know, exercise or whatever it is. And and so I kind of use that as a way of kind of talking about, well, you know, well, look, I get stressed too and self-care is important. And and so I kind of, that's what I kind of do. Yeah. But also like I think for some patients, they're kind of looking for reassurance mm. around, is this okay? Yeah. Yeah. Can you is, handle what I'm telling you? Yeah. yeah. And so usually what, like the way I would answer that, would I kind of can go on a bit of a, a sort of, attack it a little bit and so say oh well ha, do you know how long I might have studied to do this job mm. and I'll explain to them that you know I did my undergraduate I did an honours year and then I did a postgraduate doctorate um, which was meant to take three years took five and then I've worked now for what, almost 10 years so that process is like mm. it's taken me like you know 15 20 years to get here so mm. like yeah I'm really interested mm. like I really really like doing this job mm. or I might ask them about like do I look like I'm not, do I look like I'm not coping? Like what was going on? Yeah. What was going on for you to say that? Mm. Do I look like I'm not doing it? But I think, you know, I think it's sort of interesting because I think patients, pe people need two types of reactions. They need a human reaction, non-human reaction. Mm. I think therapists are non-humans at times, yeah. right? So someone might say, oh, you know, you know, when I was a teenager, I got sexually assaulted. And my question, my, my next question might be, how many times? Was it just once? <laughs> like, whereas your friends might go, like you might say it, your friends might go, oh, my God, <laughs> right? And I think yeah. you need, as a, a, people need both types of responses and it's about picking 
which kind of response you need to give someone therapeutically. Yeah. And so I often think about that kind of stuff and so I'm like, well, what's going on here? Mm. So, but yeah, you know, like a lot of, lot of psychologists are burnt out. I certainly yeah. burnt myself out in the first two years of working and kind of had to reevaluate what I was doing and how I was doing it. So I guess that leads me to this sort of other group of questions that clients often have about about how do you cope and what do you do for self-care? And so I guess that's a really interesting point. It sounds like that was a real turning point for you. Hmm. What facilitated that? How did you how did you not just keep burning out? Uh, yeah, I think for me it was like about like how much how many clients I was taking on hmm. and working out how to wind that back a bit so I was just overloaded. Hmm. And then I evaluated the kind of work I was in, I think. But then I think a lot of it's let's leave on time. Hmm. Yep. Let's let's have a lunch break. And I think there's a lot of a lot of people who are very stressed at work and they don't obey the simple rules of work, mm. you know, and, you know, there's lots of reasons why we fall into that trap. I don't want to be judgmental about it, but I, I get very sick of people who are saying that they're stressed, not with my clients, but like <laughs> in my day-to-day life, I do get sick of people and maybe probably sometimes with my clients, I get sick of people walking and saying, oh, you know, I'm really stressed. And you kind of go, well, what time are you working do you take a lunch break? Mm. Do you have breakfast? Do you ever see your friends? Mm. You know, and like... If have not, you seen natural light today? Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, like... And like I understand that things can be complicated for people, but at some point you do need to... You do need to go and do those things. Mm. And I get a bit annoyed when people kind of go, oh, well, it's so stressful. It's like, well, you're not doing all the right things. Yeah. So mm. why are you being a martyr? Go and do yeah. them. Yeah. I feel like for me it often... It goes through cycles of what actually helps and what doesn't. And if I notice myself getting stressed, it's kind of like, okay time to pause and look at what isn't working like Mm. do I need more supervision am I not doing my usual kind of drive home ritual that I have that always works my driving home ritual is listening to music or a podcast and using the trip home as all of those kind of leftover thoughts from the day and all that it's that same with do you take it home with you kind of stuff All of that has to be processed through if I have to pull over and jot down a couple of notes Mm. of what I have to do the next day, whatever, Mm. before I walk in the front door. Yeah. Is kind of the rule and I always change my clothes. Yeah, I was going to say I change my clothes. Have a shower and change. Well, I don't shower but I always change my clothes when I get home. And those symbolic things sometimes are what it's kind of like, well, that section of, of the day, day is over. Done. And I, mm. yeah and I never take work home mm. like well very very rarely yeah. like I'm talking maybe only a couple of times a year yeah and I always try and have all my clinical notes written so like so if you don't send a psychologist we see a patient we have to write notes yep. and some some people will not write their notes on the same day they'll write them days later and stuff like that yeah and, you know I know that that happens from time to time but for me, like it, as soon as I read my notes, I'm closed you. off. Yeah. And so yeah. that, and that's a way of coping, kind of containing stuff. Mm. But then also like realizing actually the, probably the really important thing is like my client's problems are their problems and not mine. Mm. Yeah. And it's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to do my job. My responsibility mm. is not to save a person. Yeah. And take on board there. And I mean, that sounds pretty hard. But I think it's like I learned that the hard way. Like mm. I'm kind of like, no, I was really taking on board that stuff from a couple of clients. And it's like, no, hang on, this yeah. is this is not this is not my responsibility. So I th- I think that question and those sorts of questions provide a really good opportunity for that conversation with our clients and discussion around, as you said, humanizing yourself, mm. but putting yourself on a level playing field with them and mm. not acting as though 
you're superior or that yeah, you've got or, everything oh, figured out. It's, it's because I'm superhuman that yeah. I can take on all of this really no, tough information. Yeah. But, but you think about like when you, if you've ever seen a therapist or if you've ever had a boss or something and it's the moments mm. that you realise they're human mm. that endear you to them yeah. and you realise that you still like them, mm. you still admire them despite them being fallible. Mm. Yep. Whereas like if you've got someone who's pretending like they're okay mm. Yeah. But you know that they're not. Like as a yeah. client, you won't ever trust them and they won't ever come back. Like so and I read that in a book somewhere and like and my experiences of that is if I if I'm tired and yawning, I try and own it. Mm. Like but also like I'm kind of honest with people. So yeah, you know what, like sometimes my job is tough. And yeah. I like my job very much, but you know, there are some days where it's difficult. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then I but I always kind of go, like, well, you know, I mean, do you relate to that? Like, what's mm. that about? Like because then you can kind of have a joint. You know, you join. I think there. So, mm, and I, th- I think, <laughs> I think feeling like it's okay to acknowledge that the work is tough mm. is also validating to them mm. that they're not just coming and telling you the things that are really, really yeah. impacting them and causing them huge stress or whatever it might be, and you're going, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. That's mm. oh. <laughs> gonna go for a swim now mm. Mm. Yeah, so I can't, like i'm actually not keeping notes i'm just writing a shopping list yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly it's sort of <laughs> i feel like i feel it can be validating to say well yeah i mean i've got all of these things in place to make sure that i can come back day after day and continue to do this but what you're telling me is tough mm. and you know is something that is important and does impact me this Definitely. is how i manage it mm-hmm. so what about advice so we got a a bunch of questions about clients asking directly for advice so things like should I leave my partner should I leave my job how do you guys handle that one oh love a good bit of advice (laughs) if it's uh for my family who I tell what to do all the time (laughs) (laughs) I really get it out of my system on them (laughs) um I I reckon it was one of the first things that we were taught, if not screened for before we got into postgraduate psychology, (laughs) (laughs) was whether you thought the job was just giving advice or not. Mm. I think it's a really tough one because you have people coming to you wanting you to help them with what they're seeing as problems. Yeah, they want guidance. They want guidance. I think it's really important as a clinician to be able to delineate those two things Mm. for a client so that it makes sense, so that they don't think you're doing some non-tangible thing that's like giving them advice, but they actually understand that it's about empowering them to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Again, coming back to that idea of empowerment and should I leave my partner, should I leave my job, all of those questions, they depend on many, many factors. Mm -hmm. And sure, I can tell anyone what I would do or what I think they should do, but it's not going to be based on my professional opinion as a psychologist Mm. because my professional opinion as a psychologist is going to be based around them feeling like they can make a decision that's right for them or at least make a decision that they feel they have thought through. Mm. And I would much prefer my clients to feel like I have been able to support them in making a decision because that also means that down the track they're going to feel more like they can make their own decisions rather than having to come back to me Mm. to make all their decisions for them. What's your guys' experience? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. See, one of my supervisors uh, told me that I've got no poker face. Oh, um, you do not. <laughs> so, I mean, so, uh, like, I mean, I think I do actually at times. At, at work, you have more 
of a poker face than you do um, yeah. personally. But, I mean, so I think it's interesting because sometimes, like, I think people are needing advice and reassurance that they're doing the right thing. And mm. I think if someone's asking for advice straight away without knowing them, like, I think that's really complicated, like, yep. because you don't really know the situation. stuff. And so I probably... A more sure footing if I kind of understand where that question's coming from over time and why they're asking. And then look, look, it sounds like they've actually made a decision, and you can kind of yeah. go, Well, you know, look, that, you know, I think actually that sounds like a good idea, or mm. you might have picked up that I have a reaction to it. But, yeah. you know, I think sometimes I sort of own and say, Well, look, look, I've got a reaction to it, but I'm not really sure. I don't really, I could tell you what I think, but I'm basing that on my gut. I'm basing that not really on. No, even if I'm basing it on psychological science, like mm. prediction of behavior is or outcome. And even Yalom, mm. like this is mm. great author, Evan Yalom, and he, in one of his books, he talked about how he'd pushed uh, someone to, you know, break up with this relationship. And then this later on, that guy, you know, ended up in another relationship and then was like actually pining for the person he mm. broke up with. Mm. And like really honest reflection of like, well, you know, a therapist doesn't really know. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's this difficult thing where people do, but like if you, if you go, if someone comes to you and goes, you know, I need some advice and you go, well, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You're being useless. So you yep. have to, but then the other thing I always think about is like, skills you know if someone comes to you drug and alcohol and says look hey i want to give up drinking yep like you know you kind of need to kind of give them information and advice and skills mm. around how you might do that problem yeah you know, and i suppose it's the difference that. between providing options of how you might do it versus saying this is your problem this is how you this is what you're going to do to fix it like being more directive or mm. choosing a path for yeah. them yeah unless it's something risky yeah but i, I yeah. think like i think for me like i've learned to be more directive yeah. over time like yeah. and learn to be more comfortable with that i think yeah. the flip side for me is always when i have th- i always notice when i have an urge to give advice because yeah. that's not something that i commonly feel in the room and so for me that tells me something that we need to talk about yep because i don't often have that urge of doing it i might have it later on after they've left of going oh i wish i could have just said (laughs) (laughs) you should do this but often in the room i don't have that feeling so it's kind of it's always interesting to talk about that like what is that what is that about or you know are they seeking advice or what's kind of happening yeah and i think coming back to what you were saying hunter about not just sitting there saying, well, what do you think? What do mm. you think? What do you think? Being the wall that they can talk to. Mm. Again, as you said before, not being responsible for them. Mm. You know, they're responsible for for themselves and their mm. decisions and you're there to support them and yeah. provide them with material or advice based on but yeah, evidence. Yeah, like, I mean, I, we had a situation recently where I was asked to see a patient. She had a particular tumour and she needed to give the treating team an answer that day mm. um she'd been thinking about whether she should have a surgical treatment that would have been horribly disfiguring mm. or just to go through with some palliative treatment so she wouldn't like so one option would be cure or potential cure but very disfiguring and a long convalescence and recovery versus say palliative treatment 
where it's perhaps, you know, six to 12 months mm. worth of life, but much, much higher quality of life. Mm. And they were like, Hunter, can you help this person make the decision? Mm. And, and I've never met the person before. So I know what I would have chosen in that thing. And mm. like, so, but I, I just used like a decisional balance and we kind of talked about what her values were and kind of like, okay, well, what are the, what are the pros and cons and the, mm. the, the advantages, disadvantages in, in, a, in a slightly more complicated way. And I subsequently found out that she'd chosen the way that I wouldn't have chosen. And, mm. yes, yeah, so it was really interesting to kind of sit with that mm. and kind of go, hmm. But it really, like, my role was to help her make a decision. Yeah, it wasn't you know. to choose for her. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's a perfect example of that in a, re- in a really high stakes situation and the value of going through that process, I guess. Yeah, mm. really, really interesting. Yeah. Last one. <laughs> uh, me? Yeah, you're asking. So the classic one that all trainees deal with uh, and have nightmares over is personal questions. <laughs> so, look, I'm just going to run through a list of them. Yep. How old are you? Have you ever used drugs? Do you have kids? What's your star sign? Where do you live? What school do your kids go to? Can I touch your hair? <laughs> <laughs> I love the last one. <laughs> Oh, hang on. There's a few more. Yeah. Where'd you buy a jumper? <laughs> um, I had one. Like I used a fountain pen. I got asked where my mm. fountain pen was from. What's your marital status? Do you have any pets? And why do you always wear the same clothes? <laughs> Can we be friends on Facebook? Nice. <laughs> I get a lot of these. Again, it comes down to how young is the kid. Yeah. So the younger the kids are, the more personal questions that they ask as a general rule, the more that they blur those kind of professional lines and whether it's like, like they have difficulty placing me, whether I'm more in the category of like a teacher that they chat Mm. to or the other day I was talking to someone about this sort of, these kind of questions. They asked for my address and I said, so have you asked your GP for their address? They went, no, why would I ask them that? They're, they're a doctor. I don't ask them that sort of thing. And I kind of went, so it's kind of... We should only PhD, yeah, me. Closer to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's more in that kind of, you know, I can't tell you yeah. where I live. But so for me, it depends on how personal the question is and how many questions they're asking and how much detail I mm. give. So, for mm-hmm. example, there's a game that I play with kids that I absolutely love, but that requires personal disclosure. So it's Jenga, but each block has a question written on it. And the deal is whatever block you pull out, you answer the question. But I've written all the questions and I also know how I would answer all of the questions. And some of them are quite personal. Some of them are kind of silly ones like, would you rather have a whisker or tails? There's a clear answer to that. Tails. <laughs> whiskers or tail? <laughs> whiskers or tail. Because yeah. a whisker or tail no, is much whiskers harder to answer. or a tail. <laughs> but whichever one you choose, the kids, it's the one that they're most judgmental about your response. There's a clear right or wrong answer for every child. But anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> but otherwise it has stuff about I, I, so preferences. Yeah. So can we whiskers or tails, Liz? Whiskers. Whoa. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Why whiskers? I have glasses and so my depth perception is quite poor. And I think that if I had some extra help, like walking through doorways... Because they'd be the width of your body. They'd be the width of my body. They'd (laughs) be quite long. Okay, continue. (laughs) Why am I the only one who answers that? Oh, tail is my answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
But so it means that I have to be comfortable with a certain level of disclosure, mm. but none of them are things that I wouldn't want to share. So I guess I kind mm. of have a, a mental set of rules. And for some people, when they ask lots of personal questions, I kind of ask about what that's what that's about or where things are sitting. Yeah. There are some questions that I wouldn't answer or that I'd kind of say that's not something that I'm able to talk about, but let's... Yeah. Talk about that thing. What, what about for you, Liz, um, in the I, forensic setting? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because you'll have some clients who just don't go there, are yeah. really good with those boundaries, particularly in certain settings. Mm. So particularly I've found if you're in a prison setting, generally speaking, people assume you won't talk to them about that sort of stuff and they don't ask. That's obviously not always the case. But I... Remember a colleague telling me once when I first got into a prison setting to come up with and think about what I was okay with sharing and what I wasn't Mm -hmm. and really clearly think about that so that you're not caught off guard. Yeah. I mean, typically in a forensic setting, you're not asked things like, can I touch your hair? (laughs) (laughs) It takes on a whole other connotation. (laughs) It does. It's much easier to respond to that one in that that sort of environment. But yeah, I think, so I think early on it was about developing, and I imagine this is the same for all settings, what you're okay with talking mm. about. So for me personally, there's hobbies or things that I will be happy to share to share and to chat about. But I mean, standard sort of boundaries around personal information about myself, I typically won't share. Yeah. And I found that it's easier having that blanket rule because it means that no one person is A, finding out from someone else that you told them this and you didn't tell yeah. them that, mm. yeah. but B, also means that it's not then a client-dependent thing. Mm. Mm. I don't tell any clients where I live, mm. if I have kids or not, that sort of thing. Yeah. I just don't talk about that. So I think, I think that was really helpful guidance early on for me and really made me think about what I was okay with sharing, what I wasn't and why. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think having been able to share some stuff with a client about yourself is useful, mm. and mm. I think it can be very th- therapeutic. Not in a, not in the goodwill hunting, <laughs> like I'm going to share with you. Ask my wife, mm. and so and I've I've had abuse too, and mm. so therefore I understand everything, and I'm going to crack this case wide open, mm. right? Like I like. That's really, really problematic. And yeah. if you've got a therapist doing that, then you need to not see that therapist anymore. <laughs> um, but I think having like – I like this idea of like you have a version of yourself, mm. but it's a genuine version of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a genuine thing. It's like, you know, if I'm going to talk to them about like, oh, yeah, you know, like I do like collecting Star Wars figures or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, you know, or you really liked fishing. Like I hate fishing, you know, blah, blah, yeah. blah. You know, yeah. It's like something that's innocuous. But like I think – it can be quite difficult initially learning because you feel like, oh, I can give away a little bit of information. I can give a little bit of information. Absolutely. And then certain situations you'll end up and you're like, wow, I've told this person way too much about myself mm. and I didn't really want to do that. And so I think over time you just get yeah. – like And you everyone just has get, their own boundaries. Get about. much better at it. But yeah. I don't – like my personal philosophy is I think that if you're – a blank slate, no. then I, th- I don't think, I don't think that's a good thing. So yeah. because much, communicating that you're not, you're not comfortable. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, and it's much harder to then build rapport someone, whether they're a professional relationship in your life or a personal mm. one, it's quite hard to feel a connection with somebody if, if there's nothing, if there's nothing there. Yeah. 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 
And it feels, I think it's quite odd, especially for people who have never seen a psychologist before. It can feel really odd while I'm sharing everything about myself and you won't even tell me if you've got a pet. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's where you draw that line. And I think that's why being able to, or knowing why you are not comfortable sharing Mm. something is as important as knowing why you are, because that can help. Yeah. And that can help clients as well if they want to know why you won't tell them something yeah Mm. exactly right all right so we're going to wrap up thanks everyone for listening so far i know it's been like it's probably been a longish one so far so we're going to wrap up with like a little bit of a lightning round okay so i'm going to ask you can answer either yes or no Mm -hmm. or you can uh, answer with like a one to two sentence statement okay okay amy can you psychologist can you prescribe antidepressants no not in australia Liz, can you take my kids away? Depends how cute they are. <laughs> no, no, I cannot take your kids away. <laughs> you can write a report though. I can write a report if I am concerned and that's something that myself or any psychologist doing that, if safe to do so, should inform you about. Yep. But no, I can't take them away. Amy, can you help me get on the disability support pension? Depends what's going on and everything that's happening. It might be appropriate for me to write a report. It might not be. Liz, can you read my mind? (laughs) Sometimes. That's it. Depends how hard I think. (laughs) No, I can't, but people... Evidence by the fact that she hasn't just ordered me some Uber Eats because I'm really hungry. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. well, there we we go. (laughs) Called my bluff. (laughs) Um, She wants you to figure that out for herself. It's about empowering you uh, to order your own Uber Eats. Oh, sure, sure. (laughs) Um, Do you ever get bored? Hmm, It's a tricky one. No. No, because I'm always figuring out where to send things next if there's kind of an impulse of why have we stalled. Uh, no, I've totally gotten bored. You've gotten bored? Yeah. Kids are weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> last one. How do you know, Liz, if your patient is improving? Oh, toughy. Combination of factors. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between them. I think subjective experience is really important. How your client describes what's going on, what's yeah. going on yeah. and how they're feeling. I think that's really important. That doesn't always necessarily correlate with uh, change in symptomatology mm. or change in behavior. So some sort of objective measure of that. Yeah, questionnaire. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's it. That's lightning round. Nice. Cheers. So we are going to go for a break. Mm-hmm. You have been listening to Two Shrinks Pod. We'll be right back. Happy days. <laughs> yeah, happy four. To, to 40th episode. 40th episode. Hooray. So uh, we are having some champagne. It is delicious. Oh, it is delicious. And uh, celebrating our 40th episode. So thanks everyone to listening, mm. uh, for listening, for the last... For listening. For listening. We've had one sip. <laughs> one sip. <laughs> um, so, but no, we uh, want to thank everyone for listening to all the episodes, Amy and I and... Liz, I've been enjoying it. Mm. Uh, it's been lots and lots of fun. If you like the show, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you do. If you like the show, please tell someone about it. You can look at our episodes mm. on our website, twoshrinkspod.com. There's a list of podcast episodes. There's also a list, which we need to update actually, yeah. on like on podcast episodes by topic. Which is so satisfying. Oh, so satisfying. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Yeah. It really works on our OCPD. If you don't yeah. know what OCPD is, go back and listen to that It also episodes. really helps our planning for what we're going to do next because you see the gaps, whereas yep. otherwise you don't. <laughs> yeah. Guys are doing a lot of justifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, look, I spent a while making But also it. like narcissistic <laughs> reflection. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> 
really well. <laughs> That's it. And uh, yeah, you can email us, email us. Um, two pod at gmail.com. We have had a few emails. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry if we haven't got back to you straight away. And Twitter. Uh, and Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter. Retweet the shows, that kind of stuff. Mm. Other comments? Well, I mean, I always ask for gifts and hand out your address, but you've banned me from that. Liz, so. any comments? <laughs> Really want some presents. I'm turning your mic off. <laughs> and also, I asked in the last the episode before last, I requested cat pictures to be emailed. No one has emailed cat pictures. What is with that, dear listener? <laughs> yeah, Amy's a cat person. <laughs> I haven't listened to that episode. Do you want pictures of my cat? Yes, I'll send pictures of my cat. Email them to two. I'm cutting this off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
really, really interesting guests like you know, former prosecutors from the Southern District of New York and other really, really interesting people who can really kind of untangle kind of stuff. And kind mm. of, I, I guess I've got to say, it was such a relief to hear people be really, really outraged mm. in about what's going on and kind of like I've travelled in America, I really, really, I think it's a really, really wonderful place and but it's just kind of crazy what's going on mm. and so it's so interesting to kind of go, yes, okay, there are other people who are really, really concerned about what's going on and there's a lot of sense of principles and they often have a comedy segment but it's also just like Virginia is really, really eloquent mm-hmm. and... Makes uh, such a difference. Oh, my gosh. It's, so, it's such a... Not unlike Malcolm Gladwell where it's like it's a pleasure, it's like a richness to mm-hmm. listen to <laughs> and hear and stuff like that. So... That, that's my number one recommendation. Yep. So, you, Amy? So, it's by a Scottish comedian. So, it's called Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside. And she's a Scottish comedian. I don't know if either of you know her. Nope. No. Uh, she's quite dry. I, I love her comedy. Anyway, she decided that she would interview eight comedians who all experience anxiety and depression like she does about what their life is like, how it's been all of that sort of thing. Uh, I found it interesting, not just because, you know, obviously psych interested in that sort of thing, but interesting in the way that they talked about it and the impact on their careers. And also, I guess I listened to it with two kind of perspectives for people who are considering whether or not they should get any help. It's an interesting one because they talk through different therapy that was helpful for them, not helpful, what kind of things they do in their day-to-day life. I guess a lot of it around the kind of acceptance of depression is a part of their everyday life and that, yes, they get up on stage and are quite kind of out there and seem to be amazing people to live with who are humorous all the time, in actual fact. Pains in the asses, yeah. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And then from like a therapist perspective listening to it, of hearing what some of the things that we're trying to do feel like for clients. And so they talk a bit about some of that sort of thing about, you know, like so Susan is a big fan of CBT. That really worked for her. There are other people who came on and kind of went, well, that was invalidating for me. That didn't address the issues that I have. So it's quite interesting either way and it's quite funny. And they kind of, you know have jokes about the kind of silly things that they've done while depressed or anxious, which are great. So it was released in June and July. I don't know if she's doing a second season, but I just burned through it. Mm. Yeah. So shall we... Should we wrap it? Wrap yeah. Up? Let's yeah. Do it up. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much for listening. See ya. See ya.